This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. The Brooklyn of Olga's childhood is fading away before her eyes. The New Yorican life the vibrant economic, linguistic, and cultural contributions of diasporic Puerto Ricans living in Brooklyn is in danger of fading away. This is the context of Xochitl Gonzalez's debut novel, Olga Dies Dreaming, the story of a wedding planner to the elite Olga Acevedo and her brother Prieto, an up-and-coming congressman, living and working in the borough that raised them. Olga Dies Dreaming begins as a witty leg sweep of the privileged classes who spare no expense on a million-dollar wedding. But this debut contains multitudes. It is a novel about Puerto Ricans on the island and in the city making their lives and the lives around them better, richer, and happier. And in following the complicated choices that Olga and Prieto make in endorsing and sometimes rejecting the needs of that community, we are thrown into the politics of the island and the revolutionaries, including Olga and Prieto's mother, who seek independence at any cost. To say that Olga dies dreaming is about one thing in particular would be to sell short Xochitl Gonzalez's literary ambitions and the way in which this novel remakes itself over and over again. I can't wait to share my interview with Sochil, whose razor intellect and quick wit made for such a lovely conversation. Before I do, I want to recommend another podcast that I'm lucky to be a part of for this season. Novel Dialogue, the podcast of the Society for Novel Studies, brings critics into conversation with novelists from around the world in a unique format that asks how novels are made and what we might make of them. The third season of Novel Dialogue is up and running, with episodes featuring Chang Rei Lee, Damon Galgut, 
Ruth Ozeki, Charles Yu, Colm Toibin, and many more. I'll be joined by guest hosts Sarah Wasserman, Emily Hyde, and Tara Menon, as well as Novel Dialogue's founders, Arthi Bade and John Plotz. The first episode, featuring Changrei Li and Anne Cheng, is live now on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Tune in and see why it's your next favorite literary podcast. And now, my interview with Sochil Gonzalez. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It is my great pleasure to introduce Sochil Gonzalez to the show. Sochil has an MFA from the Iowa Writers Workshop, where she was an Iowa Arts Fellow and recipient of the Michener Copernicus Prize in Fiction. She is a contributor to The Atlantic, where her weekly newsletter, Brooklyn Everywhere, explores gentrification of people and places. Her debut novel, Olga Dies Dreaming, has been awash with praise from critics and writers who note its hilarious originality in taking on the trope of the broken family saga. Ruman Alam points to what is for me the most striking thing about Olga Dies Dreaming, quote, its accomplishment is how a familiar enough tale, a woman seeking love, happiness, and fulfillment in the big city, slowly reveals itself to be something else altogether. That something else is the story of Olga Acevedo and her brother Prieto, Brooklyn-based Puerto Ricans who were abandoned by their mother, who fashioned a revolutionary movement for an independent Puerto Rico, leaving them with a drug-addicted father who would subsequently die of AIDS. Olga is a wedding planner who has made a thriving business from attracting an uber-privileged clientele of elites. She is enormously successful while at the same time feeling increasingly disgusted by the excesses of her clients. Prieto is a congressman with ambitions for himself as a rising political star. He is gay but tightly closeted for fear that his constituents would never accept him if they knew his truth. Both are deeply impacted by their mother's political passions, although they seem at first to have turned away from her radicalism. Olga Dies Dreaming situates us in a boisterous, loving, highly functional, even in their dysfunction, extended family of aunties, abuelas, friends, and lovers living in a Brooklyn made by immigrants and by people who work for a living. It is a Brooklyn that is disappearing quickly before Olga's eyes, consumed like everything else in New York City, eaten up by the highest bidder. This is a novel concerned with liberation external and internal. So Chiel asks what kind of revolution is necessary, ethically and otherwise, when a people's voice is no longer heard. She plums the relationship between the United States and its unincorporated territory while looking to Olga and Prieto as ex examples of the internal conflict over whether and how much to sacrifice for one's community. Olga Dai's dreaming contains so much of our sprawling, chaotic world while still managing to be a riotously funny novel of a single family, interconnected to people and places in ways that only art can make clear. 
Olga just found its way onto the New York Times bestseller list, and it couldn't be more deserving. Congratulations, Sochil, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. That was the most beautiful introduction, so thank you. <laughs> well, it's a privilege to have you here. And um, one of the things, and I think it's, you know, Ruman Alam's blurb does a really good job explaining this, but Olga begins with this sort of wonderful feint. It opens as a hilarious and knowing wedding planner sees the gross underbelly of inequality in the overindulgence of her privileged clientele story. Not that that story isn't very fun and culturally meaningful, but Olga has much more in store for us. To give us a taste of that excellent opening foray, would you read the first paragraph of the novel subtitled The Napkins? Of course, with pleasure. The telltale sign that you are at the wedding of a rich person is the napkins. At the not rich person's wedding, should a waiter spill water or wine or a mixed drink of well liquor onto the napkin covered lap of a guest, the beverage would beat up and roll off the cheap square of commercially laundered polybrent fabric down the guest leg, eventually pooling on the hideous, overly busy patterned carpet designed and chosen specifically to mask these such stains. At the rich person's wedding, however, the napkins are made of a European linen fine enough for a Tom Wolf suit, hand-pressed into smooth order and trimmed with a gracious hemstitch border. Should the waiter spill any of the luxury bottled water, vintage wine, or custom-crafted cocktails designed by a mixologist for the occasion, the napkin would, dutifully, absorb any moisture before the incident could irritate a couture-clad guest. Of course, at the rich person's wedding, the waitstaff don't spill things. They have been separated and elevated from their more slovenly, less coordinated brethren in the natural selection process of the service industry that judges on appearance, gait, and the inherent knowledge of which side to serve from and which to clear. The rich person's wedding also never features hideous carpet, not because the venue or locale might not have had one, but because they had the money to cover it over, and not necessarily just with another nicer, more tasteful carpet, but with hardwood flooring, black and white Havana-inspired tiles, or even actual natural grass. These, though, were the more obvious markers of wealth at a milestone life celebration for the rich person, and which, while Olga Isabel Acevedo's job required her to worry about all of these elements and more, the present moment found her primarily concerned with the napkins mainly how she could steal them when the party was over. Thank you so much. These napkins are going to have a, a longer life than just this uh, beginning moment. Um, and, and it's such a, it's a witty and knowing beginning. But we as readers are going to move on to an incredible spectrum of Puerto Rican family, cultural and political life in, the New, York, in New York City, and of revolutions, violent and peaceful, as seen through the eyes of Olga and her brother Prieto. So why was it wedding planning that drew you as a prism through which to see so many other things? Well, you know, when I was starting out kind of figuring out who Olga was, I, I wanted to not make her a wedding planner just because I had been a wedding planner and I felt like that seemed lazy. <laughs> I was definitely <laughs> writing fiction. I didn't know and, that about you. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh, yeah. I was a wedding planner for 13 years. Um, oh, my goodness. So, yeah, a really long time to the ultra rich. And then the more that I thought about it, the more that I felt it was the perfect profession because it enables you to talk about, it enables you to observe class. And it also allowed me to situate her as a Puerto Rican woman, as a, as a Latina, in sort of the highest kind of level of service industry where she's at once uniquely valued and yet at the same time still in a position of servicing others. Mm. Um, and I thought that that 
in some ways, metaphorically felt like the role that Latina women have been given in society. <laughs> and so I wanted to sort of talk about that. Um, and it just ended up being perfect because I, I also gave me a lot of room to have fun because weddings are kind of hilarious. And, <laughs> and I also realized that like, it's something that, you know, I used to get invited to so many cocktail parties because people wanted to hear my wedding stories. And I was like, you know, it's a great Trojan horse to start out about something frivolous that people think sounds like sexy or funny, or that maybe it's like kill the rich type of stories, you know, like, <laughs> and, um, and then you can sort of lure them into this much deeper thing. And I, I knew already from years of just sort of studying the situation in Puerto Rico, that it's like screaming into the night when you just talk about facts, like unless it directly involves you, like that's your culture, nobody seems to care. So I sort of thought that this was a fun way to seduce people into um, engagement with this issue. It, it's incredibly seductive. And also I, what you say about Olga's position reminds me, there's a moment, I'll quote it wrong, um, in the book where you um, really artfully get to the limits of her position. And you say that it's not so much that these sort of largely white privileged um, clientele dislike Latinas. It's that they don't want them telling them what to do. Um, and I, I don't know if I got that close to right, but I, I, I love that as a way of describing Olga's position. And I wonder if that feels like so much of the problem of race and, and, and privilege is this holding on to with an iron fist that I should be able to tell you what to do. Yeah, it's sort of like, I think and a lot of her existence, you know, in life, and this was definitely reflective of personal experience is wanting, she's a great person to have in the room to sort of check a box, but then, you know, the voice isn't necessarily valued, right? And I mm. think that is, um, you know, an inherent part of her own frustration with her station in life, right? Like is is a little bit of that, that she she knows her voice is worth listening to and at the same time has gotten herself in a place where it's not particularly valued unless it's about something as frivolous as napkins. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Olga is is wonderfully an homage to to Brooklyn to its food and culture and sounds and vibes, but it's also a, a very mournful consideration of how gentrification has pressed and priced out a lot of the vast diversity of immigrant communities that have in the past made the borough so interesting. Um, you describe the increasingly limited appeal that Olga sees of the restaurants and bars to the, quote, same patron, skinny, pale kids with NPR tote bags, intricate line tattoos visible under their frilly, ironic sundresses, or Bernie Sanders t-shirts with the sleeves cut off. Olga seems to say that her Brooklyn is ceasing to exist. Do you feel the same way? Um, I do. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of a lot of the wit came from anger, actually, of sort of the mm. eradication of the the place that I knew and that, you know, I can say now to people that I'm from here and that doesn't mean anything to them. Like they don't even have a cognition of what that experience was like it doesn't you know it's like the death of the Brooklyn accent which is starting to be well documented but and I think um one of the things that I really was trying to do particularly in this art form and one of the things that I'm so resentful of actually like I'll just claim resentment is how um Brooklyn has become so co-opted in in literature as like a, and and television as like a setting 
for these new Brooklynites. And it's changed the way around the globe people think of what Brooklyn is. And so mm -hmm. I felt this was sort of my way of claiming space in the cultural sphere. And that's why I, it was very important to me that though everybody talks the way that people talk when I was growing up and my friends and I talk that are from here, that the writing around them was so meticulous because I wanted to make sure that they were as artfully handled and beautifully deserving of prose as the, the sort of new Brooklyn stories that, that get that treatment. Well, you certainly give them that artful prose and, and dialogue. You're so right about the, um, almost the branding of Brooklyn. Oh, yes. It's become an adjective almost in some ways, like, but it means something opposite to what it had meant when I was there. And so it, it, it sort of like, grates on me, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and I think, you know, you deserve that resentment as someone who um, knows that it had a, a very different, and as you say, probably opposite meaning to the one that's being given. Um, someone in the book who's kind of in a position maybe to have an effect on that, but for most of the book kind of sidesteps it is Olga's brother, Prieto Acevedo. He's a he's a politically rising star. He's referred to unironically by white patrons as the Latin Obama. Um, and he appears to be opposite to Olga in a lot of ways, at least on the surface. How'd you come up with these two characters as the children of a radical revolutionary? Yeah, I love that question. You know, well, some of it was she always was going to have a quasi frivolous profession because I was intrigued by this general premise that like my parents had been like pretty militant activists um, and in the socialist worker party movement. And so I, I always found it ironic, you know, that I ended up catering to like the very wealthy. And mm -hmm. I, I, I was, I, I don't know. I, I find that. But generally, that's just one extreme example of what you could look at as sort of like the children of the people that sort of fought for a lot of these social justice movements, you know, beyond just like civil rights, but like you get into the next one, brown power, black power, and how we b grew up to become sort of materialists, you know, and I, I think I found that interesting. But then I was also intrigued by siblings and just the nature of how we we can experience similar things, but then come out with different, come to different outcomes. And so I imagined her as sort of this. And when I decided that she should have an older brother, I had imagined him because both of them were sort of, their life choices were sort of um, in response to their parents, right? And I think mm -hmm. this was his version of, of being respectful to that. And I think, it, you know, he, in making sense of it, he arrives at not so much a radical place, but a more pragmatic place is, is how he would probably justify it. it he, he's a pragmatist who wants to do a lot for people. Like what he took away was like, they were trying to help people. And in his mind, he wants to service people. And I think ironically, she services people too. She's just mm -hmm. sort of servicing a total, she is valuing, if he's valuing the public, she's valuing the people that, her parents would tell her don't want her, you know, I think at one point her mother tells her that explicitly. So, um, you know, I, I, I sort of just found them. I, I like the idea of two people having the same experience, hit them at different ages. And then how does that create, like, how does that in influence the choices that you then make each step along the way and what you're going to be interested in? And I think in her mind, she wanted to reject that. Like she was younger and you know, teenage, preteen girl, she's 13 when her mother leaves. And then she's a little bit older when her father passes. And like, that is such a reactionary age. And he's a little bit older. And so he sort of takes on this man of the house carrying on mm -hmm. the man everything. And it just, it ends up 
you know, becoming, because they aren't there and he's kind of making his way through college and he's like, well, I want to do good, but this is within the context of politics. You know, he becomes a little bit, he, he certainly becomes more centrist. He becomes more like willing to compromise. And, you know, and I think at, at any point, um, I think this idea of, of being in politics it's, uh, you know, we're seeing it now, actually, I think with some of our younger politicians, it's like, when do you hit this point where compromise and getting something done is better than sticking to your guns about something? Or mm -hmm. is the other better? Or is the latter better? You know, and I think that that's part of his his journey as well. Yeah, he becomes almost a, a bit of an institutionalist. Yes, yeah. Um, and you're, you're <laughs> totally... Fundamentalist, and that yeah, was yeah, the yeah. mental thing that I came up with the Latino Obama thing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah, uh, yeah. He is an incrementalist. Um, as that kind of turns into specific policy about Puerto Rico, uh, you know, Prieto ends up deferring to private interests uh, mm -hmm. in the island, angering his constituents and his mother from afar. Um, does he stand in in some ways for the U.S.'s failure to understand Puerto Rico's self-interest? So every character with the POV stands for something. Um, so I'd really like that question, but I always imagine him as actually standing for the the diasporic, like the mainland mm. Mm. and sort of this idea of thinking that we know better for what's happening on the island um, than, you know, the islanders do. And this idea that somehow, like, it's still fundamentally, we're still Americans, you know, and like, and our, our thought is that the, the power base, we still see Puerto Rico through an American lens, that the, the solution and the answer is our help is being a part of us. Mm. And, 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 and I think that, you know, sometimes we see that happening. I think we saw that with Promesa, like a lot of very prominent, you know, mainland Puerto Ricans, like got, you know, were advocating for policies that weren't going to affect their day-to-day -day life, you know? And, and I think that that is sort of, he, he represents a bit more of the conundrum of how are you a good Puerto Rican if you're not of the islands? Like, how are you a good diasporican, you know, like, how are you, mm. how do you do that well? And what's the right way? What's the right way to do that? And I think that's, I don't know that I know the answer. I think he just represents that conundrum. And that he takes on a little bit of uh, the paternalism of oh, America. Absolutely. absolutely. But it's because fundamentally, we're Americans in a way that being an Islander, you're just not being a, a true Boricua of the Island. You are not really an American. Like that is not like your, your, your soul is of the, is of the Island. La Matria. You know, it's like, so I think, um, you know, he doesn't see it that way, but that is kind of where he's at. He's, he is fundamentally is an American politician. Right. And, uh, you know, you're going to have to excuse my ignorance, but I didn't realize that Promesa um, was an actual thing. I thought oh, it was. And yes. so, would you explain it just for listeners yes. who are as ignorant as I am on no, this? Oh my gosh. Yes. Like it's so, it's so funny. It's like, like the truth is stranger than fiction actually. Um, in when it comes to Puerto Rico, um, what happened was the, the shortest, simplest way around it, which is actually factually true is that, um, there was a lot of infrastructure and government structuring and, and debt structuring in Puerto Rico um, when there were a lot of 
a lot of income on the island. And that income got there because the government had given, uh, the US government had given a lot of tax incentives to pharmaceutical companies to set up in Puerto Rico. And then over a span of maybe a decade, those tax incentives started to expire and the companies picked up and went home. But Puerto Rico still had the mm. same debt based on an income that they no longer had. And it created, with amongst a number of other things around mismanagement and, and being a colony, it created a, a debt crisis. And because they aren't a state, they aren't allowed to file, declare bankruptcy. And so the government um, instituted a presidentially appointed board called PROMESA, which essentially oversees all of um, anything happening on the island that involves money, which is basically anything in the government. Um, and so quite literally, uh, a lot of these people have personal corporate interests in Puerto Rico. They um, have personal corporate interests with our, you know, they support certain presidential candidates. And so it's literally oh, a God. panel of corporate raiders um, who now are determining what happens. And so, for instance, things like they set the budget for the University of Puerto Rico. And at one point they just ceased they decided that they weren't going to have a budget. And so the schools closed down. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, um, you know, they oversee the funding of PREPA, which used to be the um, which used to manage the light, uh, the lights there. And because they didn't have enough money to do repairs prior to Maria, prior to Irma, there was already power shortages and brownouts, rolling brownouts on a constant basis on the island. So quite literally, they set all of the fiscal spending and they are very tight. Um, and what's happened is it's created a mass migration that started before Maria, because if you can't get a job after school, if there's nobody on, on the island hiring. If you can't complete your education, if they're paying teachers $15,000 a year and you know that you're, there aren't enough teachers, like, you know, eventually it's like if you have a young family you're in, and you have the ability to move to the mainland because you aren't a foreign citizen, you are a U.S. citizen, it it's, it incentivizes you to do that. And what happens then is that mainlanders, Americans, not Puerto Ricans, like Americans uh, with wealth, go and can claim um, benefit from huge tax breaks. And so what we're seeing is not an evacuation in Puerto Rico as it is a second colonization where people are being driven out. Everyday people, everyday Boricuas are being driven out uh, so often to the mainland and they are being replaced by wealthy, wealthy, wealthy Americans and, and foreign nationals who are taking advantage of the of the tax incentives. Oh, my goodness. Um, I had no idea. You're right that the truth is much more disturbing than than fiction. Um, I, I'm grateful that that you told me and the listeners this, because I imagine I'm not the only one who didn't understand it. It sounds like a just a perverse experiment invented by neoliberal capitalism to see yeah. what happens <laughs> if you can chase actual inhabitants out and drive kind of privatized business in defund schools and all kind of elements of infrastructure and what are you left with? It's yep. That yep. Is so scary. Yeah, it's really scary. It's really scary, actually. And it's it's fascinating because I know so <laughs> let's put it this way. I know a lot of people from my Brown University and wedding planning days that have uh, done quite well and now are Puerto Ricans. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. So that Scene with the Selby's um, is a fictionalized imagining of what you really do. Uh, what you really do hear from when you know you get talk to sort of the the moneyed uh, white cla upper class of Puerto Rico that's taking over the island. 
Wow. Uh, well, I mean, your novel just became even more impactful than it already was for me. Uh, that leads into um, a question I had, which really has to do with my own sort of ignorance, especially of kind of island life, Puerto Rico, um, but also in how the kind of the interaction, as you say, which is is quite different between the islanders and American dwelling um, Puerto Ricans. Um, but I wonder if there's, you know, in the book, there's this interesting interweaving between this idea of New York and Brooklyn in particular as such a like Puerto Rican place and um, a place really developed in its life and culture by the, you know, the lives of Puerto Ricans there, while at the same time telling the story, especially through Olga and Prieto's mother of a kind of great desire for independence from this colonialism and neocolonialism. Are those two things in conflict? Um, you know, I think that they aren't in conflict, but they are part of the history. You know, like, I mean, I think embracing the full history is to embrace the fact that because of neo neocolonial policies, there have been forced waves of migration um, into the United States. And and what happened is like I, that I think is actually quite beautiful is that, you know, we created new communities and within that almost like, you know, a new I think of New Rican culture as like the Creole of New York. You know, it's like mm -hmm. like it's really a mix of like, you know, salsa was born in New York. Salsa was born in New York because of the like sort of sy systemic racism that led um, for, kind of through housing, like led Puerto Ricans to live amongst African American migrants who are mi migrating because of the the Great Southern Migration, right, into New York City. And so it's like the meeting of jazz and bolero. And you, it's this amazing American thing. I, that's what I I think. What's so amazing is, um, and in the writing of the story, I wanted to write it as an American story, but at the same time, that culture was born out of out of pain, right? Like, it's like nobody wants to leave, nobody wanted to leave the island. Nobody, I always say this about, you know, because on my dad's side, my dad's side of the family is Mexican, but from the border of Texas. And I'm like, nobody in my family became American by choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, nobody was like, you know what I want to be as an American? Like, everybody <laughs> had that bestowed upon them. And at the same time, it's okay, so now here it is. Like, Olga and Prieto are very American. But I, I, I wanted to celebrate the fact that despite all of this oppression and and exploitation like my culture makes lemonade out of lemons every single time hmm. and that is what i think new Rican culture is it's like you know i don't want to live in this cold place with this crappy apartment <laughs> <laughs> On top of all these other people, but you know what? Like, if I'm gonna be here, I'm gonna make new music. I'm gonna make my. I'm gonna permeate my food, my your streets with my food. I'm going to like. I'm gonna have a great time. I'm gonna make the city even better and brighter and and more magical. And at the same time, I think that that is a separate journey. Like that is like part of the history, but that doesn't change the fact that 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 the re we need to resolve the ill that came, you know, that caused that migration in the first place. Um, and also both what is happening and why I wanted it to engage with both places so intensely is because 
New Yorkian culture is now being eradicated because of gentrification. Like it's like being, you know, the communities are getting dispersed and people aren't able to live in the city anymore. Um, they are having to go to create, there is a diaspora of the diaspora now, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and it's, it, it, people are going to Pennsylvania, go, moving to the Poconos, you know, like going to Massachusetts, like moving into scattering around New Jersey and, and the community that was here and that culture gets eradicated and watered down yet again. So I, I see actually a parallel between both both things. That's a wonderful description of the historical doubling of the diaspora. I'm really grateful for that. Um, th this is a novel that is full on in its examination of uh, economic inequalities. You know, the napkins that you mentioned at the opening of the show end up at Mabel's wedding, redistributed from Olga's wealthy client. Nearly every character's arc is moved along in some way by their relationship to this inequality. There is Dick, the aptly named Dick, Olga's insanely wealthy ex who believes everything should move according to his will, who stands in contrast to Olga's description of black and brown folks who are never handed a single thing and expected to learn from the sting of hard work. Why is this fundamental state of American life important to your work and to this novel? Yeah, I think um, it's so, <laughs> that's such a great, a great question because I, I think because she'd sort of gone to the, across the Rubicon, you know, like there's this mythology uh, that's, that's, that's like waved in front of the poor and particularly poor minorities um, that if you could just work hard enough, you'll cross this threshold into American success. And it looks a certain way and look at all these people that did it. And they tend to be like, you know, they tend to look like Dick Eichenborn, like, mm -hmm. like oh, he's a, an American success story. And he grew his family's business. And she has had this wonderful opportunity to cross the Rubicon and like go to this Ivy League school and realizes that actually none of the nobody like came from where she was from like and that the, the, what they're telling everybody is like if only you work hard enough which sets up this this self-fulfilling fallacy that why i didn't make it across the rubicon is because i didn't work hard enough like you know like mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and i think it's it sort so it, it sets up it purports the same starting point for everyone and i wanted to demystify that and and that's actually why i didn't make dick a dummy. Do you know what I mean? Like he actually did do something with the family business, mm -hmm. but his starting line is so different than like hers where she's like burdened with debt and has to decide what job she can take that will enable her to pay back her loans, you know, like, and so that very simple difference, I think um, I wanted to sort of showcase the way that we we've mythologized uh, like not just the American dream, but this notion of um, egalitarianism. And I, I wanted to break that apart a little bit. Um, and I also wanted, you know, that is the other reason why I love her profession. Um, I love her profession because there is a shiny part, like where she gets to be on TV and that to everybody else looks very successful. Mm -hmm. But then there's like all of these like sort of like she like there's that scene where her knee jerk reaction is to go and pick up the mess off the floor at a party. And that's part of her job also. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so yeah. she's still doing hard work. Like she's still having to do hard work. And, and that, that is something that like, you know, Dick or his wife or, you know, like Megan, Megan opts in, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like Megan gets to opt in. And so I, I don't know. I, I think that it's, I, I think that, 
I always feel like shed, you know, it's that old thing. Like it's like the best way to disinfect sunlight's the best disinfectant. And I just wanted to look harder and scrutinize a little bit more that um, this idea that we all start out the same and that everybody mm-hmm. means the same thing. Um, and I think partially because I think that there are a lot of, you know, I, I there's parts of this book that, you know, I wrote it sort of to seduce a reader that wouldn't care about Puerto Rico, but I wrote it for the, like the intended reader in my head when I was writing every day was really for the, like the Latino person that like, is like, feels like they're constantly failing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. and it's like, no, it's not that. It's that this, you know, her mother says it at one point, she's like, the system wasn't designed for you. You know, this wasn't a game you were invented, designed to play. Like, and and I think I just wanted to break that apart a little bit and show that even at, at the, at, on the other side of success, not all these successes look the same. Yeah, and you and you mentioned Megan, uh, Olga's perky assistant, uh, who kind of down talks Olga at one point about her lack yeah. of respect for the wedding industry. Yeah. And I think you're you're pointing out so beautifully the uh, this ideology that one needs to do the work that you love, and that it's <laughs> all about you know finding the thing that fits you perfectly, when in fact that's a a, a reminder of just who gets to make that kind of choice. Mm-hmm. Whereas Olga very clearly feels like she is going to do this job well, but there are reasons that are big and heavy and powerful for why she can't stop doing it. Yep. And I think like the idea that one thing that's a person's, what I was, I loved about that, that choice was that one thing that was like a person's sort of prison, <laughs> like mm-hmm. this job, right? Like, like this, this business, she's sort of imprisoned by a series of choices that let her backed her into this corner and she can't quite figure out how to get out of it. And the other person is like, could pick through, I imagined it like, you know, she, she perceives Megan as having like a hundred doors she could cross. Like there were a hundred other calls her mother could have made like to get her in as a page at NBC or like, you know, this into the head of a museum. Like it was nine <laughs> choices that Olga would have loved to have had. Yeah. And she chose to call Olga. Right. And this for her is like, why would you choose to step into this prison with me? <laughs> I think she resents Megan partially because Megan had so much opportunity and that she chose the same path that Olga, who felt she had so few choices, took. And at the same time, it's so interesting because because she doesn't have any fiscal need for the job, Megan just sees the happy parts, right? Mm. Like it's it isn't an insult what you know and she's made to do things that she feels are beneath her well it's not she doesn't feel it's beneath her because she's there out of joy not because she needs a paycheck so Mm -hmm. you know that just changes everything anyway and that she could walk away at any time if it got too much what was asked you could walk away whereas olga's life is always too much of asking from employers and and random people and and folks who just want more and more from her This brings me to Olga and Prieto's mother, who abandons them to pursue revolution for Puerto Rico. As the novel progresses, we learn more specifics about exactly what kind of revolution she and their aunt, known only as La Karen, are imagining. As Olga's ex, Reggie, puts it, quote, I didn't say we aren't violent. I just said revolution is different now. 
Your final chapter looks into the future of Puerto Rico and to the possibilities, frightening and otherwise, of revolution. Olga's mother has a repeated mantra in the novel about decolonizing the Puerto Rican mind, an idea drawn from Nguguiwa Tiongo, who believes that the last stage of anti-colonialism is changing the way you understand cognition and language. What does a revolution for Puerto Rico and for Puerto Ricans mean to you? You know, I think that's such a profound question that I can only answer personally, but that, you know, I think that thing about language is so, um, so interesting because again, like the, I can only speak from a mainland experience and what I, I wanted it and the way that I sort of thought about it in the book is agency, you know, and I was very inspired when I wrote the end of the novel that time jumps, but I was very inspired by what had happened in the summer of 2019 in Puerto Rico because it was like that, you know, they had uncovered these texts that the governor had sent after Maria to like his sort of lackeys. Um, and they were, you know, they uncovered all this corruption and stealing of FEMA money, but they also uncovered this terrible, disgusting language with which he talks about the people that he governs. And and the people took to the streets. Like they were not having, millions of people took to the streets of Puerto Rico. And that to me gave me the, the, the idea of, that gave, that to me gave me the idea of, of what revolution would be, which is to no longer allow other people to speak for you. Hmm. And I think that in, in some funny way, in, in, in my personally, I wanted to write this book and it, it's a tiny form of liberation. I want, you know, unfortunately, I think, and actually Toni Morrison says this so beautifully when she talks about, she's like, The Invisible Man's a wonderful book. She starts with that. The Invisible Man's a wonderful book, but The Invisible Man is invisible to whom? Hmm. And like the question being like, who was that written for? And and unfortunately, what happens, what's happened like over the years is that Latinx writers, like writers of color, like marginalized writers in general, are writing to scream from the rooftops that we're here, right? And that is so often in in an art form in general. And I wanted to take that stance away. To me, revolution artistically looked like not writing for that gaze. Like and writing the experience that explaining the experience and that and that is a version of what I think revolution will mean for Puerto Rico is to not exist in relation to America, but to or the American version of success or the American version of being a state even and it's to find their own way like so I, I am a pro you know, I am ultimately pro independence if that's what the islanders want, but right now they aren't in a position to, you know, the plebiscite, even in and of itself, is almost always stacked in such a sketchy way. You know, this is when, like, they give people the chance to say what they like. And then it's at a referendum. It's a referendum that then goes to Congress. So it ultimately, what's the motivation to vote on something that's not going to be enacted? Does that make sense? Do you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. It's a vote that then daddy either approves or doesn't approve. Like, mm. it's like, it's ridiculous. And so, and you know, humiliating. I, and humiliating. Too. And so when people, when they say, oh, but in the plebiscite, everybody said they wanted to stay a, a territory. And it's like six people showed up at the polls. The only six people that thought, you know what, this joke is worth me showing up. Like, so I think that um, ultimately what I think revolution looks like is having your voice heard. And this, the structure of the book, like, is mirrored that way because Olga in in my creation of the book represents actually despite her being the uh, the new Eurekan, represents puerto rico and that she is 
mandated by her mother how to feel and see and think. And at the end, she chooses to not listen to that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think, and to have her own way, make her own way. And that doesn't mean that it might not be influenced somewhat. You know, Blanca's never fully right, but she's never fully wrong, right? Like, mm-hmm. and that's the challenge of Blanca as a character. So I, I think it is having agency and asserting your own voice. And I felt it was very important to me that I I wrote this story. I wrote this story in a way in which I wrote it to resonate with with Puerto Ricans. And I think what's fascinating and beautiful, and honestly, like my my Spanish is not good enough to read some of the literature coming out of the island, but poetry I can usually make my way through because um, I can take my time with it. And I, I would just say like, we don't even, the mainland doesn't even know. There's a film, you know, West Side Story comes out. Who, nobody, who cared? There's beautiful films being made in, in Puerto Rico about Puerto Ricans, like, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so I think like there is already cultural revolution happening <laughs> on the island. I think we just have it, it you know, it hasn't become political. And I, I would just say any, any revolution, personal, larger, or otherwise, like it's about actually having your voice being heard. And that is certainly not the state right now. So I, that was a very blah, blah, blah answer. But like, it I, wasn't at all. I, think, <laughs> I thought it was a rather beautiful description of um, a personal and community revolution. I wanted to ask about there. There are a lot of serious topics in in a novel that is it is really hilarious and and propulsive in its plot. I was most engaged by the care in which you deal with HIV AIDS. Olga and Prieto's father dies of AIDS when they're still quite young, and the specter of AIDS will hang over Prieto's closeted life. Why did you decide to have AIDS draw together the generations of this family story? You know, I I, I love that you asked this question. I and I I really grappled with this decision quite a bit, and I ultimately like I did not decide on the Prieto storyline lightly. I, I, I really talked, thought a lot about it. And it was because a, I grew up in the nineties in New York, like eighties and nineties in New York. That's when I came of age and, and the shame and the stigma that existed around HIV and AIDS was just so profound. And that shaped that along with sort of inherent um, homophobia that plagues Latino and Caribbean communities, like cultures uh, largely, I, I think kept so many men in closets. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, you know, the narrative, the mainstream narrative, especially sort of the, when I think about like contemporary Brooklyn, sort of like hipster narrative, is that like, everything is moving as fast as the most like, you know, sort of white liberal base. And, and that is not actually the case. I wanted to sort of a, I wanted to shed light on the fact that there is still, um, you know, it's that there are things like prep that for reasons around cost and like weird stigma, like, you know, are not being not as available within communities of color. And so there is still HIV and AIDS largely affecting black and Latino men. That's Mm. it's still something that affects our communities partially because of homophobia, partially because of homophobia stops people from taking prep, like like access, the cost of the medicine stops some, other, not a Prieto type of character, but other people. And this is still a part of our community, but that it, it, it should have the light of day and be destigmatized. And I wanted to sort of 
show that this is now the disease has changed, but that who it's afflicting, it may the, the, the circumstances may change and how the the contractions change have changed, but that it, it's it's still something that's a part of our communities. And it's not something that got erased. You know what I mean? Like I think people think AIDS is gone. And I'm like, mm-hmm, actually mm-hmm. It's, it's not gone. It's not, it's not a death sentence. It's not what it was. But I wanted to also just pay some homage to the fact that like I am so proud of the way that our country has moved on on LGBT, LGB rights, I should say, T rights, not not so much, but like Mm -hmm. I I feel like we've not been as forward as we could be and should be. But I think that that doesn't mean that everybody is experiencing that same degree of liberation, if that makes sense and acceptance. And I wanted to call some attention to the fact that there are, are still you know, and I, and that's actually you know, the timing of of all those things. Like I think I, he says at one point, like it's like if maybe it had Jim McGreevy come out or Ellen come out already and had her show, and like you know maybe these things would have changed his thinking. Mm-hmm. But the, the, his thinking was shaped by this time, you know, and this idea that he didn't like you know who got eight, like he's like I'd rather tell people my dad's a heroin addict than tell them have them think he's gay, you know, like and and so I just I wanted to sort of show the interweaving of this disease, the stigma the change from how it's become, why and how it's still a part of life. And also the fact that like queer liberation is not equal. Mm -hmm, (laughs) It's mm -hmm. also not equal. And I I wanted to just put that as part of the community. And, and, you know, and I, I think it's say that the freedom for your own acceptance can look different ways because one of my favorite characters in the book is Tia Lola. I, I don't know. I love that Tia Lola sort of makes life on her own terms and is not in care of like being a part of like, you know, uh, of a conversation that she's like, it doesn't affect me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that for me felt very real, like to my family and to family members that I know of my friends and, and, and people I know. So I just sort of wanted to show the diversity of that experience. So I always end the show by asking one of my favorite questions, which is, what are you reading and loving right now? And what particularly is on your nightstand calling out to you? Oh, okay. So I'm going to like give like one popular answer and one totally unpopular answer. But <laughs> I just finished reading Kim Ji-yong, Born 1982 um, by Cho Nam-ju. Have you read it? I it's haven't. So- no, I don't. I don't know it. You know what? I, it's like sold like a million copies and nobody's heard of it. And, and and it's it's a Korean novel. It's like the weirdest thing where it's like at once like insanely internationally bestselling. And then mm. at the same time, no one's heard of it. So translated. It's it's translated. And it's a Korean novel that actually a, a fan of Olga suggested to me. Mm. Um, and so I read it. It's very it's a slim novel. I've been very into slim novels lately because I, I can't seem to write them. Um, and I loved it. It takes on sexism in um in korea and south korea and it's it's really 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 marvelous and then i actually am like i'm rereading the brief and wondrous life of oscar wow right now mm-hmm. and partially because i am working on something that is a little bit more um fantastical and um in my next book. Um, and so I'm reading a lot of research. I just, I'd been reading a lot of campus novels because it's partially a campus novel right now. I'm reading to write is like the phase that I like to think mm. of it. And I, um, you know, I don't like to throw the babies out with the bathwater and I love that book. And I just wanted, I, I, I read it as a reader. Does that make sense? Like I wasn't writing. Then, so I want to read it as a writer. And so that's what I'm kind of doing now. 
And uh, I'm a huge campus novel nerd. Uh, are, are there particular ones that you've been finding inspiring? Well, I, I'm purposely not rereading The Marriage Plot because I, my novels also set at Brown and I don't want to like like subconsciously get influenced. But I read Julian Barnes' The Sense of an Ending. Mm, it's, mm. It's, it's, it's a lovely like, slim novel. It's a lovely slim novel. I had reread, I reread Donna Tartt's um, her famous campus novel. Yeah, the um, the the archetypal campus novel. Yeah, it is uh, the archetypal campus novel, and it's funny. I, I I was so in love with that novel when I read it in like when I was much younger, and I was less in love with it now. But hmm. I was madly in love with Secret the History. Yes, yeah, Secret History. Yeah, I was madly in love with the sense of an ending, and then I'm going to reread On Beauty. Um, mm-hmm. so, but you know, I, I'm, I'm the other thing that this is not an answer to your question, but the other weird thing that I'm trying to do, which has been bizarre and like a, a brain war, like, I mean, just a, a mind messer is I, because my book is set in the nineties and the eighties, I've been rereading women's magazines oh, from that era. So interesting. Oh my is disturbing. Yeah, I bet. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> a headline from the year that I graduated college, which is part when the book is set, find your ideal weight. What men will think about your look? Men sexing you, caught in the act. What <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> this is like on the cover of Marie Claire. Holy so I've cow. also been reading and like I think maybe giving myself a mild eating disorder by reading 90s women's sex. <laughs> so I've been reading a lot of strange stuff, but right now I'm I'm sort of very purposefully reading, and I I kind of can't wait. Uh, the last thing I read for pleasure, 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 besides that Kim Ji Young was my former teacher Sam Chang's new novel, The Family Chow. It's amazing. Mm. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Oh my god, it's wonderful. Oh, that's exciting. I don't know that one either. Her, she wrote an insanely wonderful campus novel novel called All Is Forgotten, Nothing Is Lost. It is. The one of the most beautiful campus novels ever written. Mm. Well, I have to read that. That sounds yes. like it should have been on my reading list a long oh, time ago. Uh, it takes. It's like about poets, poets at a midwestern writing program. Mm. <laughs> well, these these are really wonderful, uh, and you're such a great interview. It was really just a pleasure to hear you talk about your work and and to talk about the history and future of Puerto Rico. I can't thank you enough and congratulations on all the success that oh Olga Guy's Dreaming thank, is having. Thank you, but I can't thank you enough for just how thoughtfully you read this book and like you saw some literary things that um, nobody's asked me about. And so that was really beautiful to talk about. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. I hope you have a good day. You too. Well, that's all from me for now. My heartfelt thanks to the brilliant Xochil Gonzalez. You can find her novel Olga Dies Dreaming, as well as all of her recommendations at burnedbybooks.com. All three seasons of the show can be accessed on iTunes, Spotify, and with the New Books Network. Please take a moment to leave me a rating on any of the streaming services. It will help other listeners find the show. Next week please tune in to my interview with Andrew Lipstein 
author of the literary hoax thriller Last Resort. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. <laughs>